Welcome to the Grow Kinder podcast, where thought leaders in education explore how social emotional learning can help us navigate society's most pressing challenges and create a kinder, more compassionate world. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Hi, Grow Kinder listeners. It's Andrea. I'm excited to be back on the podcast, and I'm here today with one of our new co-hosts, Shauna McBride. Welcome, Shauna. So great to have you as part of the team. Thank you, Andrea. I'm so excited to be on this side of the podcast, and I'm really looking forward to the conversations that are planned for this season, especially because so much has happened across the globe, as well as here in the U.S. and, of course, within Committee for Children since Grow Kinder went on break last August. To help catch our listeners up, Andrea, you are now the CEO of Committee for Children. Congratulations again. It's thrilling for everyone on staff and for our communities. Tell us a little about that and tell us a little about what Committee for Children has been up to during the time away from the podcast. Yes, well, thanks for your uh, for your thanks and for your recognition, because you have been such a support during this time. I don't know if folks are aware that you are a VP here at Committee for Children, a vice president, and we are so lucky to have you. So again, I'm really happy you're on this side of the podcast, too. And, you know, as I've taken on this role of CEO, I won't say that it was expected at that exact point in my life. It was probably an ambition that I had for some point. And I'm very happy to be in the role because it allows me to do more for this mission, which is always a privilege in my book. So I accepted that role in December of last year. But when you say, you know, what have we been through since last last August? It's so much. It's hard to know where to begin. Of course, we've been focusing as an organization on weathering the effects of the pandemic and still delivering on our mission with excellence. And we've been trying to support the very, you know, we've reached so many educators and families and children, and we really have been trying to serve them as best we can while they navigate these new learning environments and methods. And of course, everyone is experiencing just incredible levels of trauma and anxiety throughout all of this. And I think most importantly, during this, this last year, We've been renewing our commitments to and taking significant actions toward advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And that's both within the organization and externally. And all of that required a lot of deep strategic work, working with diverse communities we serve, learning with and from those we hope to serve, and the development of new curricular resources, just so many things. Then, of course, personally, it's it's always big to transition into a new role, but a role with so much responsibility It's really been thinking about what direction I think is right for Committee for Children, especially given the many crises that the world and the U.S. has experienced in the last year. And I'm also trying to navigate that while helping my own family and friends and colleagues try to care for themselves and each other. But I'm excited to be in a position that will allow me to do new, exciting and challenging work to further our mission. Mm -hmm. So as you shared, Committee for Children is very much focused on contributing to a more diverse, equitable, inclusive, and just society. How have the events of the past year highlighted the importance of that commitment for you, for the org? Well, you know, our country and the world is experiencing a much needed reckoning with systemic racism. And that's really catalyzed us to focus more intentionally on and to really accelerate our own DI work. We were doing things, but I think there's been such an incredible focus in the last year to ensure that we're actually making true progress on our journey that will affect change not only internally, but externally. 
And to achieve our mission and our vision, we know that social, emotional learning and development has to be rooted in equity. We have created a new equity statement. We've done a lot of work to support ourselves in the diversity, equity and inclusion journey. And we recognize, condemn and seek to disrupt systemic racism. We know that this is so detrimental for all children, especially black, indigenous and children of color. So we are seeking an equity mindset in all that we do. It has to be woven into the fabric of this organization. The ways we work internally, the culture we co-create, the curricula that we create, training, family materials. And of course, we do extensive policy work. And there's such a huge lever there in really focusing on equity. So we're really committing ourselves to helping young people discover and grow competencies that are going to support their resilience and their ability to contribute to more equitable schools and communities. And we want to really express how we value their unique identity, the unique identity of every child as we do this work. Oh my goodness. I love everything you just said. Love, love, love it. That's the perfect segue into today's discussion. Every January, typically around the time of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, I read, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, his fourth book. And every year, it still feels so incredibly relevant, even though it was published over 50 years ago. You've also read the book, correct? I did. And also, of course, found it very relevant to our current situation, which is disheartening in many ways, but not, not surprising. I think the calls for change and the ideas to really bring about a more equitable society in the U.S. are ideas that racial equity and justice movements are still fighting for now. So, of course, I think progress has happened, but the pace is troubling, especially with the loss of so many black and brown lives caused by unjust systems and practices. You know, in reading it, I was, I was thinking, why this particular work for you? Why do you choose to reread this every year? History is really important to me. And one thing my mother always said, which is, I think, you know, a famous saying is that those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. What I love about this book is that it is, it's equal parts for me, poignant, analytical, and most importantly, hopeful. And for anyone that is a questioner and incredibly inquisitive about the world and the ways in which we can, quote unquote, do something for others, as Dr. King states, there's so much value in this book. And one thing that has always stood out to me in all of Dr. King's work is the sentiment around the idea that all movements need hope. And this past year, I mean, (laughs) where to start, right? We need hope, but we also need real solutions and we need everyone doing the work, work that, you know, as you and I have discussed many times, it's, it's hard and it's messy and it's never ending. There's just so much in this book that is really still relevant. It blows my mind every year, but this year, especially in the introduction by Vincent Harding, there's, there's reference to how determined Dr. King was to be fully and creatively engaged with the living history of his time. And I mean, when, you know, when I read that, it is so relevant for everyone right now, especially those that are focused on social justice, anti-racism, any type of journey toward a more diverse, equitable, inclusive society. I've heard so many people joking about being done living through history. And at times I completely agree The word exhausted, it isn't even deep enough at this point to describe how 
I, and I'm sure so many people feel as we are living through history. So for Dr. King to intentionally acknowledge the importance of being fully and creatively engaged with living history was, it was really powerful for me this year. Also, Dr. King, he posed questions in the first chapter of the book that I think about every year and, and would love to chat about today. And, and those questions are, where are we? Where do we go from here? Chaos or community? Who are we? Who are we meant to be? And do we have the power to begin the world again? It's a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's so much to think about in the book. It's interesting how it stands, both both as a historical document, but also for its relevance right now. And so I think all those questions are still valid questions, for better or worse. I'm also curious, you know, I, I know we want to kind of get into what those questions mean for us now, but it sounds like it's somewhat rereading this kind of renews you. Is that how you feel about the text? Yeah, it does. It really does. Because, I mean, life is hard. It's really, really hard. And you have stops and starts and you have moments where you're, you know, 10 steps forward and then you take 20 back. You know, my dad grew up in such a different time than, than I am currently living in. And he has told me many stories about the era in which, you know, Dr. King was alive. And I, I just, sometimes it's really hard to fathom my husband is white and that was illegal not so long ago and i am black <laughs> i need this book in many ways to to be reminded of the struggle and i have such an appreciation for dr king i can't imagine the pressure the desire to really bring about change and he very much was focused on coalitions and community and knowing that we can't do it ourselves. And, and it, it does renew me in many ways because I, I want to see change in the world. And, and he, in my opinion, just so visionary when it, when it comes to that. That's lovely. I was raised by people who predominantly grew up in small, predominantly white rural areas, but I did that growing up in a one of the most diverse areas that you could grow up in Kentucky. And I would say the it being in, in such a diverse environment, the lack of education around diversity was apparent <laughs> that there were, and that we were not expected to read things like this book, I think is, you know, there were so many things that we were trying to navigate as children growing up in that environment and having different lived experiences and experiencing different kinds of discrimination and oppression that we just couldn't, I don't know, we didn't have the tools to have the conversations and to try to make things better as we grew. So anyway, I've been thinking a lot about that as I'm educating myself and reading texts like this one. I've always, um, I've always so appreciated my conversations with you about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because you are incredibly thoughtful. I see you as someone who's a lifelong learner and you really have vision for change, which I think is so important. And there's a, there's a passage early on in the book where Dr. King says, white America is uneasy with injustice, but whites, it must frankly be said, are not putting in similar mass effort to re-educate themselves 
out of their racial ignorance. It's 50 years later, and after all that our society has been through over the past year in particular, some feel that we're finally making progress in, in diversity, equity, inclusion, and in anti-racism and anti-bias efforts. There are others that aren't so optimistic. And Andrea, as, as I'm sure you remember, we were actually supposed to record this episode the day that the Derek Chauvin verdict was announced. But we decided to take some time to process that historic moment and, and all of the different emotions that came with it before having this conversation. And I keep thinking back to the words of Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison that he said on that day. He said that even though he thought the verdict was a step toward accountability, he wouldn't call it justice because in his words, justice implies true restoration. You know, what are your thoughts? Have, have we moved forward at all? You, you touched on this a little. And in, and in the words of Dr. King, where do we go from here? Yeah, well, first of all, I would agree entirely with the attorney general's statement. And I'm sure you join me in feeling frustrated that there is a relief and celebration about things that should be the bare minimum like accountability for taking someone's life. I, I'll characterize my own feelings as cautiously optimistic. Have we moved forward? Yes, but any progress towards social change on a large scale, any progress in challenging oppressive systems and racist beliefs historically is just tenuous. The backlash can be so brutal. So many white Americans do not sustain commitment to learning the true history of racism in this country understanding the power structures and privilege inherent in those systems, fighting for change each day. And I think that means in personal interactions at work, in the community, and also in being an active contributor in public life to being an active citizen and understanding what the policies and the folks that you're voting for actually mean for, for people who aren't just you and look like you. I think that's so incredibly important. Dr. King spoke of needing that commitment from white America, and I believe there is more commitment now, certainly 50 years later, but so much still really feels like words, not actions that truly move the needle. And we do have to move that. We have to move toward a more being a more equitable society. So where do we go? You know, the only place to go is forward. The march of progress, even the face of backlash continues. Movements based on the dignity and inherent value of each human being, I, you know, they must prevail. What choice is there? And that is so intrinsic to our own work. So I keep the faith while nonviolent action is the order of the day in King's philosophy. That's not a passive philosophy by any means, right? That is a theory of change. It's active. And I think right now we all must act on our commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those empty words have to be a thing of the past. Yes, yes, and yes. So let's talk about education. Our favorite than, subject, one of our favorite subjects. Yeah. <laughs> Very important subject. More than 80% of our nation's teachers are white. And according to a Washington Post article titled, our schools are more diverse than ever, but our teachers are still mostly white. In nearly all US school districts, students of color outpace teachers of color. What do you think educators and other adults that that serve children can learn from Dr. King's book? What lessons from the book can they use in the next school year 
to really lead diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in their schools and in their communities? Yeah, well, there's so much, but to start, let's let's include in that context of not just educators, not not just teachers, but education business providers of mm-hmm. content. I mean, predominantly those who are serving education are white. They do not mirror the student population in many ways, not only racially, but the quote that really stands out to me that I thought a lot about and thinking about education and school communities when I was reading this book is the one about the world house. We've inherited a large house, a great world house in which we have to live together, that we are a family unduly separated by ideas, culture, and interest, but we can never live apart again, I think is what he says. So we have to live with each other. And our education systems, our schools and classrooms, there are many world houses And with educators and staff, they have to have educators and staff who reflect the lived experiences of students. So those world houses have to also include education professionals and staff that are reflective of the communities they're serving. And they also have to be committed to peeling back the untruths that perpetuate, you know, a whitewashed version of history and prop up these systems of oppression. King teaches of the interdependence of human beings in the U.S. and the necessity of teaching each person and treating each person with dignity, ensuring equality is as central to each person's own well-being. And that's something that can be taught through words and actions in the classroom. He spoke of educators not knowing what to teach or how to teach at that time. And I believe educators do hold the safety and well-being of students as paramount and that they're answering this call to learn and to unlearn for the sake of the communities that they serve, but they need help doing that. They need inclusive curricula, they need high quality professional learning, they need culturally relevant materials and family engagement methods, and holistic approaches to supporting social emotional growth of their students. And all of those things are are really critical in addition to diversifying the teacher workforce to recognizing and supporting this world house that we have to live in together and the microcosm that is these school communities, these classrooms. Yes, loved the, the section on the world house. So after reading the book, how are you thinking about the relationship between, you touch on this a little, relationship between education and social action? I think, you know, what's interesting is I feel like this is a little divisive to talk about education. You know, I, I think there are some who don't like the idea of education as a tool towards social action, that that's indoctrination. But actually, so much of education is indoctrination right now. <laughs> The quote that I love so much from Dr. King is education without social action is one-sided, is a one-sided value because it has no true power potential. Deeds uninformed by educated thought can take false directions. I mean, it's just inherent to education, this idea of agency and action. We speak a lot of student agency, of value-based decision-making, student-directed learning, the value of education and self-advocacy and community activism. That's clear. And that's why so many schools and out-of-school time organizations focus on service learning, project-based learning, things that bring value to the community and broader society. The critical thinking that has to go into looking at complex societal issues. We have a responsibility to support students' growth as engaged citizens, active citizens, global citizens that participate in and drive the development of a more just society. And we miss out on that potential and ignore that responsibility really to our own detriment. Has your perspective on the the intersection, connection between diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, anti-racism, and social emotional learning in schools, has that changed? And if so, 
how, and if not, why? I think social emotional learning is such a turnkey, right? It can it can affect so many different things um, in a school environment and in the individual development of a child. And so educators rightly turn to social emotional learning as a key component of many strategies that they are using to increase student well-being, to work toward a more inclusive climate in their school. And I think King in, in this book calls out a few core difficulties in achieving the promise of equality, which you know I would characterize now as, as really a focus on racial equity. Those issues that he calls out are a lack of empathy and ability to take others' perspectives, a lack of understanding of our own interdependence as human beings, the need to build inclusive, well-resourced schools that really foster educators who are committed to quality, relevant, true education that spurs value-based action and decision-making. And he also talks about building students and parents' agency. And so I, when I'm, I wouldn't say that it's completely altered my view of SEL, but a holistic approach to SEL supports equity and social justice You know, when one is seeking to set a foundation for addressing these kinds of issues. And SEL can create a more positive, inclusive school climate when it's approached through a lens of cultural relevance and affirmation. I would say the book really supported my growing understanding of the role of high quality social emotional learning as part of a broader strategy to address equity in student and community wellness. There's a section of the book where Dr. King writes about the dangers of procrastination and equity and waiting for quote unquote a program to be given to us. It's it's probably fair to say that some educators are anxious to take action toward diversity, equity, inclusion, or anti-racism efforts in their school community without a program in place. And that makes sense. But what do you think are the risks and rewards of waiting for a program developed by experts in DEI? And what about the rewards and risks of stumbling forward without a program and and taking messy action toward equity? Is, mm -hmm. Is there any middle ground for educators? Yeah, this is always a tough thing in education. I think when there are emerging needs and, and educators are truly looking for best practices. And it's sometimes hard to, to find those things, especially, and I would say equity has been a focus of education for a long time, but you know, there's still so much work to do there. So I really believe a first step for educators is to address, to address their own individual development in the area of DEI. There are high quality programs, training op options. Many of those are free and districts are seeking those for their educators now. And they'll provide education and tools to develop their own self-awareness, reduce their implicit bias, or at least increase their awareness of their implicit bias and reduce their bias and you know, develop skills that can create a more equitable, inclusive environment of belonging in their classroom. But next, they really should be advocating for the adoption of broader educator development and evidence-based approaches that are relevant to their own school community. And I think really listening to, understanding, and being involved in the community that you're serving is essential to this work. So now's the time for action. In action at its best is keeping children from opportunity especially those children most systemically marginalized, at worst, continued inaction is feeding into and perpetuating cycles of oppression. And that's resulting in trauma and loss of life for Black, Indigenous, and other people of color at alarming rates. So there is a responsibility to take on this work, however messy. And I think educators, if they are doing the work internally, 
their own individual development, really trying, seeking to understand the needs of their individual students and of the communities that they're serving and advocating within their schools and districts for high quality programs to help them and tools to help them and development to help them. That's what they should be doing right now, in my opinion. I love that. And I love how you zeroed in on the importance of, of self-reflection. It reminds me that, you know, one of Dr. King's central element of his practice was self-understanding, self-examination, and deep reflection. And honestly, I think that is another reason that, that this book always is important to me, because day in, day out, year in, year out, we all need to, to do that work, right? To reflect and examine and think, how do I go further? How do I, how do I move this work forward? And, and what is my role? One of the questions that was asked in the book was, do we have the power to begin the world over again? That's a real big question, I know. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? In reading the book, that as, as Dr. King is, it was so inspirationally written, but I think out of context, it could sound a bit like a do-over, which was not the premise of the book. And so I first want to say there's no erasure. <laughs> we can't start over as if what has been can be erased. And it's already so difficult for white America to recognize and rectify the past. Forgetting is not an option, should not be an option. Restoration, reparation, and setting a new course is possible. You know, and I think a lot about our responsibility to children, because what are children, if not architects of tomorrow? I'm not saying we leave everything to the children. We need to begin to build a better world this minute. You know, we should be doing that work every day, as exhausting as it may feel, as murky, ambiguous as it may feel, as, as many mistakes as we may make as human beings. We have to do that because then the work of, of our children is clearer We've modeled it. It's more sustainable. And they'll recognize their place in that world house that we talked about. And they'll be able to co-create it, co-create this culture of belonging and really move toward a safer, more just world where each of them can thrive together. That's my hope, as I, I believe it was King's hope. Mm. And many of many of us, I think, still are moved by his messages and you know, I felt that way after reading this book. Having conversation with you about this is always so meaningful. I thank you for today's conversation. You, you walk the talk and it means a lot to the work that we do at this organization and the work that is ahead. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate this discussion and, and be well. I feel the same. And you are always so generous in these discussions and I appreciate that we are able to have these conversations in a way that moves our work forward. And we're both very dedicated to what are the actions this organization can take that actually delivers on this mission in a way that's rooted in equity. And so your deep commitment to that and expertise is so incredibly valuable and I'm thankful for it every day. So thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Action, 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 onward. <laughs> right. No other course, but onward, right? That's right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. For more episodes and information, visit growkinderpodcast.org. 
And while you're there, we'd love to hear more about you and what you think of the Grow Kinder podcast. Until next time, be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.